0: It is Friday, December 29th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, some of our favorite interviews from the previous 12 months, including a nearly forgotten naval tradition, highlighted in a new book, from a pair of John Brown University professors.
1: Basically, the poems are supposed to include some of the basic information that a standard deck log includes.
0: Plus, we talk about new music with musicians in Shine I Yell and discuss their record inspired by the Buffalo National River and the legendary people who've lived along the river.
2: The first thing I did when I moved here is I got a really good map And I love maps, and that really kind of opened the door for me to start exploring.
0: And for his 2023 novel, Keith Fire, used real-life knowledge to write about music, friendship, and the challenges of
3: addiction. You and I know so many people who have been through these things, and so in a way, in a way it is about real people. First, the news.
4: Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown, performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for Fall 2024 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants. plsc.uark.edu for more information.
0: Welcome to Ozarks at Large as we get closer to ending 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, we're sharing some pieces and interviews that aired earlier this year. And we'll tip our hat to the approaching new year with a conversation about a nearly forgotten tradition, a poem to bridge old year and new on naval ships. And a reminder that January 1st brings opening registration for a cross-state bicycle tour that's making its debut in 2024. Those conversations ahead. First, an album released in 2023, Buffalo National River Songs Volume 1. It celebrates not just the river, but the people who live and have lived along it. There are songs about legends, ginseng, and the overall mood of places like Snowball, Mount Sherman, and Gilbert. Caleb Snaslaw wrote the songs, takes lead vocals, and plays guitars and bass. Scott Hoffman produced the record at his Harrison studio and provided backing vocals, drums, mood synth, and percussion. Earlier this year, I talked with Caleb and Scott via Zoom. Caleb had driven up from his home in Tomahawk to join Scott at the Harrison Studio. I asked them about the wide-ranging sounds and atmosphere of the record, blues, strings, folk, and more.
5: You know, we discussed when we, there was only one song written when we started the project, so it was a ride in the studio kind of thing. And, um, you know, I said the thing that, I don't like about a lot of modern music is you get an album like, okay, there's the drum sound that they used on all the songs. There's the guitar sounds. And I was like, you know, my favorite producer, George Martin never did that. He produced to the song. And so, um, that's what I told Caleb was like, this is the approach I would like to take.
0: Caleb. What was that like then having, you know, some in the studio suggestion and direction?
2: Well, truthfully, um, working with Scott is the first time I'd ever worked with a real producer that uh, had a vision that we were working, you you know, he had a, he had an idea of the way the song should sound uh, when it was completed. That maybe wasn't what I was envisioning, but uh, you know, I think the more we work together, the more we're were able to trust each other. And so Scott will come in and be like, Hey, we got to change the key of this, or you need to play this way faster or way (laughs) slower. Play less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just strum it. It's <laughs> nice and easy, you know. Um, so he gives a lot of little. It's a a good song, is a lot of small parts put together into a whole. And a lot of times those small parts are really simple.
5: Oh, so we got the Jinxing Blues, you know, and it's got that breakdown near the end of it.
6: Burn so thick and golden, seal you don't have to buy what you don't have to steal, yeah. Living up the land like a native song. Stumble on down.
5: You know, it's a straight up blues song through the whole thing. I said, you know what would be cool is it just totally makes a left turn and we we bring in a string orchestra for just that middle part and then go back to the blues thing. So he's like, Okay, let's try it.
2: So it worked. It worked it sounded really cool too.
0: Let me ask you Kayla, about um, the ballad of Lizzie Briscoe. I had not heard of Lizzie Briscoe before I listened to this album, but she's like a legend there. She must be. I mean, as many children as she helped deliver.
2: Indeed. Um, and Lizzie Briscoe did deliver over a thousand babies in her lifetime. Come to find out there are other midwives that um, did the same thing out here in rural Arkansas that, you know, keep in mind back then there was little to no access to doctors or you couldn't travel And these Lizzie Briscoe would, uh, I just, I have this uh, uh, imaginary picture of her, you know, riding through the night and driving rain on a horse trying to go deliver a baby. What a tough woman, what a, and a lot of love, a lot of uh, compassion to be that person, you know, so that's where that song came from.
0: Scott, I have to tell you, when I first started listening, the very first couple of seconds, here's a name that came to me, Al DeLore, who was the producer on Wichita Lineman and a lot of Glenn <laughs> Campbell's, you know, songs in that era. And there was something about the production of that song that took me back to that sort of beautiful, lush production.
2: You know, we owe a lot to Tim Crouch, who played the uh, strings on that song. Uh, He, he really, his special sauce on there Mm -hmm. helped it get to that level, Wichita lineman level. I mean,
5: yeah, I told him uh, when I sent him um, this road, I said envision a string part that was, you know, recorded at Studio A, Nashville, with Chet Atkins at the helm, and that string sound, the Nashville string sound, you know that. It was so distinctive that that early to mid seventies. That's exactly what we were going for. I, I used that. I think I used Andy Williams, and we did reference Wichita Lyman a couple times.
0: Caleb, you grew up in Texas. Your family's in Texas roots. Scott, you've lived in in the Ozarks for a while. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, um, you know, how it came together because these songs are about the Buffalo River area, places like Snowball, which most human beings let alone haven't heard of, but haven't been to, did you have conversations about the Ozarks and, and what it means to write songs about the region?
2: Well, as soon as I moved here, I, the first thing I did when I moved here is I got a really good map and I I love maps and that really kind of opened the door for me to start exploring. And then when I met Scott and we started this project, well, we wanted to make it about the Buffalo national river because there's all these characters, all these places, place names that are under celebrated. Um, and from a writer's perspective, I love to write. I love to write music. It's, it's really special to have something like the Buffalo national river and the history and the people around there to write about. And there's just so much fodder there. And we're using, uh, books reference you know we're reading stories and and uh you know i'll have a song idea and he he's like hey what if what if that was a you know civil war song or and it, we just kind of the back and forth is what's fueling the uh, the songwriting
5: and used a lot of uh, periodicals from the uh, boone county historical museum uh, i subscribed to that and so and a my interest in that too is a lot of this area, my wife's family homesteaded. Mm. So there's a lot of family connection through her with that. So, and I, I, I studied Boone County history and the Buffalo River history and uh, was good friends with John Paul Hammersmith when he was around and know a lot
0: of his history. So, Caleb, who is Bigfoot of Snowball?
2: There was a real gentleman named Buster uh, and he uh, had really big feet. His shoes are in the Marshall a uh, museum at the library. He had size 42 shoes and he was a real guy. And anyways, my neighbor told me this crazy story about this guy who would go around and stomp around in the mud and then hide in the woods. And, and then his friend, would, you know, they'd find some unwitting campers and point at the tracks and the, scare the campers off. Uh, and then, you know, um, when they, uh, when the campers ran off, they would drink all their beer and eat all their hot dogs. And, you know, so he had this reputation of imitating uh, a legendary creature, Bigfoot. It, the, the song itself, Bigfoot of Snowball, kind of blends the story of Bigfoot with the story of this real man. And uh, I hope I did him uh, the right for that. You know, uh, it's it's just a, it was a neat story. I could not write about it.
6: Said I remember of a hot December It would not rain, it would not snow The river dried up to a few mud holes It's six long months since the river flowed Down in the mud, what did I see But a big old footprint, size 23 Could not believe my sober eyes I swear that footprint was two hands wide
0: Scott, I mean, you're doing a lot here. There's production, there's drums, there's the synth, all kinds of Mm -hmm. percussion, bass, uh, backing vocals. As a producer doing so much, what's the equation you go through to make sure you're doing just the right amount?
5: Yeah, I think it gets back to just producing for the song and not, in fact, we, we just came out of the studio a few minutes ago, and we're it's a total departure from the record, but it's like, you know, we're, we're adding just enough to showcase the vocal, and that's what I try to do, because the story and the vocal, that was the important part. I wanted the music inter- interesting, and um, so, and everything was at my disposal. Like, um, I'm trying to remember what song it is. It's at, um, um, one of the songs i played drums with a promark makes these thing called broomsticks there's drumsticks made out of broom corn and they sound cool but there's not a lot of attack and so i'm listening to the playback and i go you know there's just not a enough attack on the snare and i'm looking around i had two pair of pliers in the <laughs> control room so i just opened up a mic and whacked those and layered that on the snare i'm like okay that's all it needed
2: that's moonshine, <laughs> moonshine mary. mary yeah, yeah.
6: Jar of fire, shake it in the moonlight. If it don't taste right, drop you a tear and let it sit.
0: I also like extra sugar.
2: That was an important moment. Uh, we crafted that song. So we had Sugar For My Tea, which is kind of a lighthearted moment. Um, and But we, we really needed extra sugar to have it. We, it has a different time signature. It's a musical break. We have a lot of lyrics, a lot of words, a lot of singing on the record, so it was nice to have a musical break. And it really sets up that the last two songs on the record, which uh, are two of my favorites. <laughs>
0: why do why are they two of your favorites what what attracts you to them connects you to them
2: well broken trestle is another neat uh kind of historically inspired song it was about uh a trestle on the buffalo that um a coal coal car went over and of course it broke and fell in the river you can still find coal in the river to this day actually Mm -hmm. down there uh but I had this idea, this vision of a, a guy standing waiting on that train that never got there, and then took that as a you know a literal thing, but created a metaphor out of it and, and made it about friendship about about relationships and and hopefully found something universal to share with people. And then Don treader I think, is just a great cap to the record and, and it hints at what we're going to do next. We're going to get a little more rock and roll. we want to be a little edgier.
5: Well, in the Broken Trestle, too, we, we got to the end of the production and went, you know, we don't have a train song on this. And, you know, uh, all this area was railroad. And so I pulled out the story about the Missouri-North Arkansas Railroad and was telling him, it was like, you know, the initials, people used to joke in the, in the 1920s that it stood for may never arrive. Yeah. And so we kind of took that theme and, um, and he wrote a song about it.
6: train I've been thinking about yesterday and I can't shake it maybe there was another way I was stuck outside old St. Joe yeah I can't fake it I've been waiting in the rain for so long I've been waiting on a train that just won't come and I don't know why tied up on the line, that must have had another bad breakdown. I can't imagine. Little did I know the trellis broke. Now the engine's down in water deep. Cold river
0: flowing. Caleb Sanislaw and Scott Hoffman talked with me about Shine I Yell's new album, Buffalo National River Songs, earlier this year. Scott lives in Harrison. Caleb lives in Tomahawk. You can learn much more and find links to the songs at com. This is Ozarks at Large.
5: Hi, Emerson Alexander here with the Listening Lab. Thank you for sharing your stories with us this year, and we look forward to connecting with more stories from our community next year. Happy Holidays, Feliz Navidad, and a Happy New Year.
0: Thank you. This is Ozarks at Large, and we're continuing to listen again to some of the conversations we enjoyed bringing you in 2023. Keith Byer's latest novel, The Black Telecaster, A Crossroads Story, is about friends who form a band, not to get famous, but to spend time with a shared passion. The book, mostly set in Sepulpa in eastern Oklahoma, is centered on music, but examines friendship, addiction, reconciliation, and aging. The book is fiction, but Keith draws on a pair of his life's passions, music and counseling, to bring his characters to life. He's a songwriter, and he also has a Ph.D. in rehabilitation counseling and education from the University of Arkansas. In Black Telecaster, Keith explores real people with real jobs and real challenges.
3: Almost everybody, you and I have known many people who who become musicians and start a band, and most people want to make it big, you know. And none of these guys really had that in mind. They they, they sort of all had this idea, I'll have a day job, and I'll be good at that, and this will be something I do for fun. You know? And that's very unusual. Jimmy, who is
0: sort of the person who starts the band, has a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it causes him – I'm not going to give too much away here, but it causes a split between he and his band members. Right. And again, this is one of those incidents that could be very small that no one notices but it has ripples throughout their lives. How did you decide how to show how that split affected the others? Um,
3: I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not sure, Kyle. I know that the the, the, the guy, uh, Smitty, who was sort of the, the guy who kept everything together, uh, he he had this uh, just this feeling internally that he was a good person and he always tried to do the right thing. And that's the one thing in his life that he felt that he had screwed up. He thought that when – when Jimmy uh, had a problem with alcohol and he fired him from the band, although it was probably the right thing to do, it, it, it hurt him for years that he had done that and that he didn't find a better way out. So I think, uh, um, I think that was really the, the, the thing that – it was the thread throughout the story. Uh, but um, but it, 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 it's real life. You know. That's what happens when, when people screw up and drink too much. <laughs> they mess things up for everybody else.
0: The title object, the Black Telecaster, factors in in a major way, but in this way that it's also kind of forgotten.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really like that part of the story and uh, the Black Telecaster. Uh, th- that that I was halfway through the thing when I decided that that was going to be the the title and the theme of things, but. Um, I've known lots and lots of musicians in my life, and they—they they really are. Uh, uh <sighs> you know, we always say there, there are two kinds of people in the world. Well, there are two kinds of guitar players in the world. There are guitar players who love to have, they could have 30, 40, 50 guitars. My friend Ed Nicholson has more <laughs> guitars than, than than you could shake a stick at. And there are people who have a guitar and that is their guitar and nobody touches it, you know. Well, he turned, he was the guy, Jimmy was the guy who just had this, this guitar. Um, and he had come to realize that his mother had overspent for it, couldn't afford it, bought it on time, um, and and it really meant a lot to him. He never touched another guitar, even after this incident where where the guitar was was uh, trashed. He never played guitar again, you know. And I, I th- that sort of has some uh, um, I don't know it has some deeper meaning to me. Jimmy, as we mentioned, is an alcoholic. He has to leave the band, and you
0: write about him matter-of-factly, the Mm -hmm. life he has afterward, how he can't forget this incident that, again, wouldn't be that big a deal outside of the small circle of friends. It's not going to be front-page story or anything like that. And I'm just wondering what you did to kind of try to understand Jimmy.
3: You know, I think I've known people like Jimmy. Uh, I think I've known people who uh, had a problem with alcohol, maybe drugs, uh, and who knew they had a problem, but just could not get away from it, you know. Uh, and in the in the book, I mentioned that that Jimmy, um, after he left the band, he was all angry, and the, you know they had done him wrong, <clears throat> and and he says it took him ten years to sort of figure out that it, it wasn't other people, it was me. I did it to myself, and uh, I think that's. I I thought that was a that's something that a lot of people don't ever come to they don't ever come to realize that and i thought it it showed that he was a he was a deeper person than than he seemed to be you know
0: i also thought it was realistic in that at one point jimmy admits yeah i have a problem with alcohol yeah. but he has no interest in in seeking sobriety
3: yeah i think he just thought it was too late at that mm-hmm. point you know and and at one point he just says i'm a hopeless drunk and, He's and, kept a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he, and he took pride in that. Yeah, he he, uh, he took pride in and never having to go to anybody else for help. Uh, probably uh, didn't go to anybody else for help in any other way, but certainly not for his for his alcoholism either. You know, those two things are probably combined. You know, as long as I can do it on my own, I'm okay. As I was reading this the first time, I read it twice. About
0: a fourth of the way through, I said, "Wait." Is this a documentary? Are these people he knew, and he's giving us the five thousand, uh, you know, feet above, mm-hmm. you know, a memory of it or, or documentation of it? But I did think for a bit maybe this is nonfiction.
3: As I said earlier, you and I know so many people who have been through these things, and so in a way, uh, in a way, it is about real people, but. Pieces of different lives kind of put together uh, to be Jimmy, for example. Um, I've known people a lot like Smitty. And so it is it, uh, it, it is fiction, but it's based on real people, you know.
0: It's told in really four chapters. There's, you know, getting together. Mm-hmm. There's like the incident, mm-hmm. how that changes lives. Then years after that, um, attempts at reconciliation, mm-hmm. and then an epilogue. How did you decide to tell it like that after the fall, before the fall?
3: That's a – you know, I I, I I swear it just happened. I, I started to think about this thing. I'll tell you how this whole thing started, and, and uh, uh, it, it, you'll make fun of me. But, you know, for 50 years or so, I've been writing music, writing songs and everything, and, and I write a lot of songs. I, I write all the time. And I, I wrote a song for a group of songwriters that I meet with regularly and it was called uh, uh, "It's Too Late Now to Sing Those Good Old Songs," and it was really about someone who who um, enjoyed playing music, but he he went to the bars. That's so where the music is, and he he got hooked on alcohol. And so the song is about uh, the his his life uh, has taken this thing, and now it's too late. He can't get back into singing those old songs, and so. Uh, I wrote the song, and it, the song was only so-so. I think, you know, I didn't think it was one of my best. But I started thinking that's a pretty good story, really. <laughs> and so everything kind of built on that. And um, I, I, I think I just started writing, and I thought, okay, I have this, I have this outline in mind of this guy who's going to bring these other guys together, and they're going to play music. And honestly. Anytime you think about people who have long careers, successful careers, in our area, you think about Earl and Ernie Kate, you know?
0: Yes, absolutely.
3: (laughs) And uh, I almost, uh, uh, you know, when I I mentioned it one time where the the guys got a little bit bigger and they were playing a little bit outside of Tulsa and Sepulpa and they came to Georgia's and played. Mm -hmm. And I I thought about having Earl and Ernie be there to see them, you know, but I thought that I didn't have their permission to do that. Um, But but it's sort of like, at a different level, because uh, the Kate brothers, Earl and Ernie, are uh, have been stars. They've they've done amazing things.
0: American Bandstand, yeah, open for Queen,
3: Just, had a top forty hit, yeah. exactly. But they they they've done that over um, you know five decades, and so I thought, well, heck, if if uh, Earl and Ernie did it, these guys could play for a long, long time, you know. And in the book, I recognize or I, I acknowledge that towards the end, you get to be kind of a, a novelty thing. You know, these guys are 80 years old and they're still playing, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but it was, it that, that's where it all came from. And it just sort of grew as I uh, as I thought about it. I would think about it during the day. I'd write at night, you know. And just to point out, you're saying that the guys at
0: Crossroads became a novelty, not that Ernie and Earl.
3: Earl and Ernie are not a novelty. They are still, right. <laughs> they're the real thing. <laughs>
0: yes. I appreciate it. And I can't remember. It's one of the characters who gets first introduced to country music through their grandfather. Mm -hmm. Is that? Smitty. Smitty. Okay, that is Smitty. I just felt seen because there's a page where he talks about how his grandfather kept the records. Alphabetical order, and then in chronological order of release.
3: It's like... Is there another way to keep your music? I <laughs> mean, that's with, how everybody does it, right? <laughs> that's exactly what I thought, too. Yeah. And my son does that, too. He lives in Chicago. He, he said, you only do them alphabetically. I do them alphabetically. And then, you know, in order of release. So.
0: And, and, and I, you know, I have about 10,000 CDs, and it's alphabetical. Yep. Regardless of genre. <laughs> yes, you know? me too. Okay. Well, I thought, his, I thought the best thing his grandfather ever did was tell him that's yeah. how you do that. I am so intrigued. Maybe this happens as we get older. But I'm so intrigued about stories of reconciliation. And I think, the, for me, the best part of this book is when Smitty is considering reconciling uh-huh. with Jimmy. How do I do it? Is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Should I try? I don't want to give anything away, but it's an interesting – the the most interesting part of the story, I think.
3: Yeah. And, and he uh, – Smitty – Continually throughout the throughout this book and throughout their lives after this book is over, <laughs> continued to lean on his wife. Had such such love and and respect for her, and and he asked her, you know, should I do this? Uh, and and she gave him, I thought, which which I thought was a wonderful answer. You know, you you have to do it because you're asking the question. You know,
0: Lucinda Williams' recent memoir. I don't know if you you haven't it. read it yet. No, it's so good. Um, she discusses honestly an attempt to reconcile with someone she was associated with professionally and they had a falling out over a studio recording uh-huh. and she attempts to reconcile and it doesn't work yeah and and it's interesting because there's no guarantee
3: no there's not and i think that i i when i came to that crossroads in the writing i i recognized that it was possible to have it just fall apart and not go but then i just thought that reconciliation was so important to the everybody else in the story you know and and uh i i i really came to like those folks and i like the fact that that you know uh uh, jimmy's ex-wife who left him only because of the drinking had remarried she brought her new husband to this reunion that they had uh and and one of the things he said because they were uh you know welcoming her uh, and they all hugged her, and then they all hugged him. He said, "This is the hugginest group of people i 've ever seen yeah. <laughs> and i thought uh, that that reminds me of a lot of people I know, but it it uh, it really struck home to me
0: I also think it 's effective how you write about a milestone in maybe three or four words you you don 't you don 't try to milk something for dramatic effect. Yeah. you just let the words and I think you know what i 'm talking about there 's one thing it 's just like oh."
3: That was one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. It's just, it's like, this is what happened. And and, uh, and, and I, I, some of the other people who've read it said the same thing. That's the part that really grabbed me, you know.
0: All right, so you have characters in this book that have one guitar. You have characters that have multiple guitars. I know which one you are.
3: I've got multiple guitars. More than two dozen? I, I've had as many as 27. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but But now, right now, I'm down to like, 17 I think or maybe 18 uh, and then various mandolins and 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 other kinds of instruments that I've made or or uh, acquired along the way uh, I don't play mandolin well at all I know a few chords I wish I could play it better but I've I've made uh, seven or eight mandolins you know just because um, you can only make so many guitars there's only so much space in the house you know? <laughs> so, and I love the mandolin and I've so I've made some really nice ones I wish I could play them better one last
0: question about the style. It's in these, par- these 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 block paragraphs. Yeah. Why'd you do it that way?
3: I liked it. <laughs> I, I I that's a really good question. I think uh, <laughs> I think I, w- I wish I had a really good answer. I think I, I think it's because, um, you know, I, as I said, I do a lot of technical writing, a lot of research kind of writing, and that is all uh, really prescriptive, um, and and I. In in writing a lot of uh, quotations and a lot of uh, dialogue, I wasn't I've never really had much experience with that, and so I just wanted to, for my own organizational p- purposes, to keep it kind of straight in my mind, you know. But I, I thought it turned out well as well. I did, or else I would go back and uh, have gone back and changed it. But I really appreciate the fact that that you enjoyed it because uh, 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 I don't want to get too crazy here, but I've admired your work for a long, long, long time. Well,
0: thank you. And uh, as I wrote to you in the email when I was asking you to come in, it's a book that hits differently, I'm sure, for someone who's yeah. 60 or so than a reader who would be 30 yeah, or 20.
3: And I also think it has a, it's it's a niche market for sure. If you never played guitar and you never tried to start a band in junior high, it may not mean that much to you.
0: I think... I didn't try to do that. I'm not musical at all, but I knew people who did. Yeah. And I know people who are still in these kinds of bands. Yes, they is. don't think they're going to hit it big. They'll release an album, but they
3: enjoy it. They yeah. love it. Congratulations. What, on thank the book. you very much. I appreciate you.
0: Keith Byer's novel, The Black Telecaster, A Crossroads Story, available now and is published by Constantina Press. Our conversation first aired on Ozarks at Large in August. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us. In August, on a very hot day in August, a new outdoor event was announced, the Arkansas Graveler. The bike tour will, in its inaugural year, take cyclists across much of the Arkansas Ozarks and then toward the Arkansas Delta. Next June, about 400 cyclists will cross the top tier of Arkansas, covering 336 miles of gravel. The inaugural Arkansas Graveler will be a six-day tour, not a race, starting in Fayetteville and ending in Jonesboro. Along the way, there will be overnight stops in Oark, Jasper, Marshall, Mountain View, and Cave City. Scotty Lechuga, a professional cyclist and cycling coach, is the event director for the Arkansas Graveler. She says putting together a route that will cross 10 counties, was a labor of love.
7: You know, it's a lot of route recon, a lot of driving roads and getting dead ends and running into private property and rerouting. And But in all of that, there's so much adventure to this route. It's going to be really an exploratory touring experience for people that ride and love to ride gravel. Um, it's hard. The route is difficult, and there's no way around that. Just riding through the Ozarks here, it's it's hard to rain, and so people are going to have a challenge, definitely, but they're also going to be richly rewarded at the finish line every day.
0: That's because she says each of the overnight communities will be putting their own spin on hospitality, food, drink, and music with Ozark flair. Mike Spivey, the executive director of the Ozark Foundation, says he thinks the Arkansas Graveler will become a legacy event for the state.
8: Every year, the route will change so this year the inaugural route goes from Fayetteville to Jonesboro. Next year it could go from Hot Springs to Helena, or from Little Rock to Bentonville, or other other routes that we may put together. The idea is to move it around, keep it fresh, get the community engagement, And just create this amazing experience that's very unique to Arkansas.
0: Spivey says he thinks the participants of the first Graveler will be a mix of locals and visitors. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders says the cycling tour will give every rider a chance to see parts of Arkansas they may not be familiar with. The fact that they will go
9: from our two biggest universities, literally covering our entire state from one corner to the next. Will give us the opportunity not only to highlight the sport and what we have here, but also the commitment that people have and the opportunity that we have in this space.
0: Event director Scotty Luchuga says the overnight stops are not just a chance for riders to rest but also a chance for smaller Ozark towns to celebrate.
7: They have been nothing but welcoming. They are even doing things like, uh, Cape City has a group of watermelon growers that are gonna start early to have a batch just for our event. And it's that kind of stuff that's gonna really showcase the hospitality of Arkansas. And it's um, going to make a huge difference for our participants.
0: She says the hauling of riders' equipment will be shuttled from one overnight spot to the next.
7: It'll be fully supported. If someone has a, a mechanical or an accident or just doesn't feel good, we'll be there to pick them up and take them to the finish. So it'll be extremely well-supported, safe ride, um, not a race, so people won't be, you know, gunning for first place or anything like that. It'll be very much a tour.
0: The Arkansas Graveler begins next June 23rd in Fayetteville on the campus of the University of Arkansas and will Will conclude June 29th in Jonesboro on the Arkansas State campus. The executive director of Experience Fayetteville, Molly Ron, says she thinks the event will allow all of the host cities an unusual opportunity. To work together.
5: Doing tourism for Fayetteville, as you might imagine, we're a little bit limited in scope when it comes to getting to branch out and work with other cities. But as a native Arkansan, I personally and Brandon on my team, we really hope so. We hope it'll build um, build those relationships in those other communities that aren't necessarily always um, included in our conversations.
0: Registration for the Arkansas Graveler opens January 1st, capacity capped at 400 riders. They'll push off in just under 10 months. Mike Spivey with the Ozark Foundation offers a bit of advice if you're thinking about doing it. Start riding your bike
8: <laughs> in the mountains. <laughs> um, this, this ride is approachable. It's that first part of it is going to be tough, but there's not a day that's over, I think, 55 miles. Um, and there's a good mix of hard surface and gravel. Um, there are going to be some climbs, but a person who's interested in this, uh, who may be an infrequent cyclist, they need to get on their bike and just put in the miles.
0: And the good news, next year's tour ends in the Flat Delta. Just think, it's all downhill from Cave City. You can find out more at ArkansasGraveler.com. This is Ozarks at Large. That story first aired in August on Ozarks at Large. Registration for that first ever Arkansas Graveler opens at 9 a.m. Monday, New Year's Day. This is Ozarks at Large, a book released earlier this year about a little-known Navy tradition— written by a pair of retired professors from John Brown University, offers a peek into a young sailor's thoughts as the world was at war. Midwatch in Verse by Gary Gwynn and Dave Johnson explores the tradition of the first dock log of a new year on naval ships, being written as a poem. Earlier this year, we reached the authors by Zoom to find out more about the book and about that New Year's Eve tradition. Dave Johnson says he discovered the tradition... While doing research about something else,
9: and ran into a 1959 article that had been published in the uh, United States Navy Institute, Institute's uh, magazine called Proceedings. And this uh, uh, this individual who wrote the the article was a, a, a retired naval captain, and he described the. The tradition along with a lot of examples that he had run into uh in his own research and all of those examples were from the world war ii period and that's really where this where this started
0: Do, what are the poems uh, about are they about ship business are they how does mm. this work
9: gary i'll well, let you take that one yeah um
1: you know, there's a, an incredible variety of things that uh, that are included in the poems. Basically, the poems are supposed to include some of the basic information that a standard deck log includes. In a standard deck log, uh, Navy regulations say that certain things should be included. And there are things like the location of the ship, the speed of the ship, destination, Um, where the power is coming from, what boilers are burning. It's all really boring, kind of uh, mundane stuff. So the poems are supposed to include some of that basic information, which is one of the things that's interesting about the poems, because the young officers who are writing these poems have to work this information into a rhyme scheme. But the fun thing also about the poems is that they go all kinds of other directions too uh they talk about what's happened on the ship what's going on on the ship sometimes they 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 complain about the fact that this is new year's eve and all their buddies are celebrating new year's and they're stuck on a midnight to 4 a.m watch and the only time of the year that a, a a deck log can be written as a poem is that very first deck log of the year the four hour watch from midnight to uh 4 a.m and so the guys will complain about being stuck on ship and not having any female companionship and not having anything to drink you know no uh no women no scotch the whole thing and and so uh, there are certain themes like that that keep returning and there are also things like the, one of the things we found was interesting was the American kind of uh, confidence almost to a cockiness and the uh, and the assurance that we're going to win this war kind of thing, you know. So, um, yeah, a lot of different topics come up, but um, some of these guys are really pretty good poets. I mean, we... Most of them are just basic rhyme scheme poems, uh, but some of these guys tried to do some really interesting things. One of the poets uh, did a parody of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and wrote it in the same style and kind of uh, structure and used some of the same phrasing as Poe's The Raven, which made it a really fascinating poem. Uh, Another one uh, imitated, uh, Gunga Dean. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's qu- quite a variety, Cali.
0: So these were, I would imagine if you're pulling the midnight to 4am shift on the first morning of the year, you're probably not a senior officer no. <laughs> on the ship. So these were young men.
1: These are young officers, yeah. mostly uh, occasionally, a, a a higher officer would do, it, but they're mostly ensigns, and lieutenants, uh, lieutenant JGs mostly. So yeah, junior grade lieutenants and ensigns, young men.
0: Do were they signed? Do we know the authors of the the poems? Yes. <laughs>
9: they yes, have to sign the deck log. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we do. We do know the authors. Um, that might not be the case in modern, in the modern navy. Um, some of that information gets redacted now from modern deck logs, but uh, back in those days, uh, we we did know who those uh, who those authors were, uh, and uh, that's one of the led to one of the greatest aspects of doing this project, which was that I was able to identify family members uh, of these individuals. Uh, all of the all of the poets of the the poems that we used in our book uh, are deceased, uh, but I was able to find dozens of uh, family members, mostly their offspring, and um, and I was able to get in touch with quite a few of them and send them copies of their uh, of their father's uh, deck log poem that uh, uh, that he wrote back in the back in the early forties. How they were all
1: all shocked too and really thankful to get the point.
0: Oh, I bet. Yeah. How do you find deck logs from decades ago? Is it difficult? <laughs> um no, Not, said no.
9: There there's there's a yeah. there Many of the World War II, quite a few. I don't, I don't know if I say many, but quite a few of World War II era deck logs have been digitized by the National Archives, and there are quite a few that are available online. But there is, there are limitations uh, there. Uh, so, in our case, after getting what we could, what we could find online. Uh, we hired a researcher, who that's what that's what he does. He has a company where his people search the archives for specific kinds of items, uh, and he was quite familiar with the tradition of of deck log poetry, which was great, and uh, and so he was able to go to the the ships that we designated and and asked him. Um, yeah, as part of as part of our contract with you we would like the the New Year's Day uh deck logs for these ships in these particular years and he was extraordinarily uh helpful uh even though all of this research he did was during covid and the archives would go up and down they'd close they'd open uh, mm-hmm. and so it was it was a bit of a journey but uh but yeah we some of them are easy to find. Some we had to get some help.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Gary Gwynn and Dave Johnson, who're co-authors of Midwatch in Verse, this book about deck log poems. Some of them, eight decades old. Was it like you felt like you were reading a time capsule?
1: Oh boy, I sure felt that way. Uh, you know that it's it's amazing that. Uh, when you read these you realize you've got this young officer sitting on a ship that all of the ships that we picked were in combat uh so all of them all of these writers had experienced or were about to experience the combat of world war ii at sea and they're sitting there and what comes out in the poems is the incredible humanity of these young men, they're in a war, the most inhumane uh, experience imaginable. And yet their humanity comes out, their sense of humor comes out, uh, their love of, of home and and their love of their ship. And so the point uh, some of these guys didn't survive the war. I mean, some of the, of the guys, the poets were later killed in the war. And so it was it was like reading a time capsule and it was uh, some of the stories were really touching.
9: Yeah, I would, I would add to that. um, I think Gary might've touched on this uh, indirectly a little earlier Um, in terms of the content of these poems. uh, One of the things that um, since he was our primary poem analyst, uh, he pointed out in the book that, that there were, transitions over the 1941 through 1946 uh poems and so we got a few poems that were 1941 so were pre-pearl harbor and then we have some from january 1st 1946 and so they were post post-war and and some of the content of those poems uh, changed over over that period of time, and uh, Gary mentioned that uh, that some there were poignant moments in some of these poems, and for me, uh, one of the poignant moments came in a poem um, that was from 1946, and it was written by an individual who. Uh, whose ship was being decommissioned. They were uh, they were in port. the, the ship was being uh, ready to to essentially be scrapped. And he wrote a very poignant poem about uh, the war being over and how he, in his particular case, he was a Navy reservist and and about eighty percent of those serving in the Navy during World War II were reservists. And so they were they were citizen sailors. And he made a, a very poignant plea to the regular Navy guys who were now going to uh to to be left while the reservists were going back to civilian life about taking care of this navy that that these civilian soldiers or sailors had um had participated in. And and it was just such a um it was just such a poignant moment uh, where he says, "Yeah, we did our part. We're done now. Please, let's let's not, you know, recall us back into a fight." Uh, and so he made a plea to the government. He also made a plea to to his regular Navy uh, peers, you know, that that uh, take care of what we're leaving. Dave mentioned that there was
1: a change over time, and really. the the most interesting and poignant change to me was the change in tone of the poems the pre-war poems were just kind of happy-go-lucky you know as these guys young officers on a ship and and then right after Pearl Harbor 1942 three weeks after Pearl Harbor these guys are writing these poems and now you've got this tone of OK, you know, they asked for it and they're going to get it. You know, we're going to we're going to wipe these people out. And and the, the, the optimism was really quite something because they, they felt like within a year the war would be over. You know, hmm. we're going to get these guys and they're going to be sorry they did that to us. And then about halfway through the war, the tone becomes much more sober and weary, you know, and the later you go in the war, the tone of some of these poems becomes, "By God, we're going to stick this out, you know, and we hope that next year we can make this thing end." Kind of thing. It was it was pretty touching when when you realize these guys have been at war for three years, yeah. four years, and uh,
0: yeah, you know, you think of the different elements that are involved with this 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 watch because. The ocean is vast and dark, right? So so there there is a, a point of contemplation. New Year's Eve, when you're working, you can become very contemplative about that. And if you've experienced or are thinking that you're going to experience combat, I mean, I can't think of a much more sort of isolated solo time in a young person's life than being on a big ocean in war in the first hours of a new year.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that comes through sometimes. It really does. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah.
9: And and a, a number of the poems were were also written while they the ship was docked somewhere, uh, which which presented its its own set of of issues for these young these young <laughs> sailors because here they were uh, here they were docked and they could actually hear their colleagues on shore. Uh, having having quite a good time, and and frankly, uh, uh, fairly frequently, uh, well, they, they bemoaned that fact. But fairly frequently, the poems would contain uh, little vignettes of what they think might happen as some of their friends be-
0: come staggering back to the ship
9: after <laughs> uh, after they've been partying. The,
0: the book. We also learn about the ships themselves, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, the book is, uh, each chapter of the book is patterned the same way. The first part of the chapter is a, a history of that ship in combat, uh, what the major actions were and what happened to the ship, it's just sort of the story of the ship. And then we do one or more poems from that ship during the war. And then uh, the short biographies of the poets. So you get the ship history, a poem and how that poem kind of reflects the time and the moment they're in, and then uh, who the writer was.
0: Midwatch in Verse is written by Dave Johnson and Gary Gwynn, and it's available now. We talked with the authors, both retired professors from John Brown University, earlier this year. It was on the eve of a book release event that took place at Ivoryville Brewing in Siloam Springs. The book available through all major online booksellers. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, a listener supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us in 2023. Matthew Moore will be with you next week for more of our favorite pieces and interviews from. This year. Have a safe New Year's. We'll talk again soon.
4: When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or Life.com for more. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net.